0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word A radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter Your word is a lamp unto my feet
1: Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to 1 Timothy chapter 5. The remaining two chapters in this epistle consist almost entirely of specific instructions from Paul to Timothy regarding how to deal with various groups of people within the church. As a Christian in general, and as a pastor in particular, it is never enough for us to do the right thing. We must always seek to do the right things the right way. And so here we see Paul teaching Timothy how to do all of the correcting and commanding and prescribing that he has directed him to do. Look at verse 1. "'Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity.'" The word used in the first part of verse one is an interesting one. It is used only here in this particular form in the New Testament, and it means literally do not strike or do not rebuke sharply. Paul is telling Timothy not to lash out harshly at older men, but to encourage them as you would your own father. It is tempting, of course, to adopt a heavy hand in ministry, particularly when you feel like you're dealing with people who really ought to know better. But the real pastor is gentle with the sheep, particularly the older sheep. And Thus, Timothy is to treat the older men in the church as he would his own father. Now, I've had the privilege and challenge of pastoring my parents for the last 13 years, and so I have a sense of sympathy for this verse. I know that if I had to rebuke my father, it would be quite a difficult undertaking. I think I would send someone else, to be completely honest with you. It feels unnatural for a son to rebuke his father, and so it should. There should be a bit of holy reticence when it comes to such things. Of course, you must press through that if there is something significant on the line. But again, pity the church that has a pastor who delights in rebuking his people. Most of your leadership as a pastor should come through the pulpit. It should come through teaching and encouraging from the text. When personal correction is required, you should go to it under earnest and prayerful compulsion with your heart in your throat and with your opening words well prepared in advance, I imagine. That seems to be the attitude that is being commended here. Don't be eager to rebuke, and don't be harsh when you must do so. As to men more or less your own age, treat them as brothers. Now, I suppose how you interpret this verse depends somewhat on the sort of brother you grew up with, if indeed you had that privilege. I understand it to mean that I can be a little bit more direct with men my own age, I take it to mean also that I should look at the men in my church as friends and companions and collaborators. I know some pastors who think that it is better not to be friends with the men in their church, lest it complicate the pastoral task, but I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I think you can be friends with people and still tell them the truth. Your brother is usually your first true companion in life, but that doesn't mean that you can't have it out with him from time to time. Of course you can. And yet with a brother, once the storm is passed, the friendship continues unchanged and uninterrupted. I imagine that to be most of what Paul is saying here. Enjoy your brothers. They are God's gift to you. And be glad that you can speak to them frankly when the occasion requires it. He then tells Timothy to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. I think that's excellent counsel. One of the best things about the church for a young pastor, such as Timothy, but for everybody, is the abundance of mothers who will inevitably take a personal interest in you. Of course, if you are a young pastor, you have to be careful lest any of them try to control you with pies and cakes and other demonstrations of kindness. But apart from that relatively rare danger, the mothers in your church are a blessing to be enjoyed. And again, not not just for the young pastor, for everyone. The church is a family, and the number of godly older women who can usually be found there provide one of the best adornments of the gospel that anyone could ever ask for, hope for, or imagine. So Paul tells Timothy, treat them with respect and enjoy them. And treat women your own age or younger as sisters in all purity, Let there be not even a hint of anything improper between you and the women of your church if you're a young unmarried pastor or an older married pastor for that matter. Now, I happen to have a sister as well as a brother. So again, I have a natural sympathy for this verse. A sister is a friend. You can laugh together and help each other. And part of the joy in that relationship is the complete and utter absence of sexual tension. That's a gift of nature. And Paul says here that it is to be imitated in a spiritual sense within the church. In the next several verses, Paul begins to speak to Timothy about how to care for widows. Now, it might be surprising for us to take note of how much word count Paul devotes to this topic, but we remember from Acts 6 that the care of widows was a major concern in the church from the very earliest of days. The first thing that Paul says is a bit surprising. He is eager for Timothy to distinguish between true widows and those who, for one reason or another, ought not to be so considered. We see that in verse 3. He says, "'Honor widows who are truly widows.'" But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, to properly understand this passage, we must first acknowledge that our English word honor does not perfectly capture what is meant by the Greek word timao. It does mean respect and revere, but according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Honoring includes material provision as well, closed quote. Paul uses this word because it is the word used in the Greek translation of the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. Well, since the church is the household of faith, then that commandment is here logically extended to include our older mothers. We are to respect and revere them, of course, but we are also to materially provide for them as well. Now the church understood this perfectly well, which explains the crisis of Acts 6. Caring for all of those mothers nearly brought the rest of the ministry of the congregation to a screeching halt, and so the church had to reorganize. Here we see Paul anticipating another crisis, running out of resources due to a lack of backbone and discernment. Paul says that only true widows, or we might say only the most desperate widows, are to be materially provided for by the church. Those who have a biological family should be cared for by them. The church is not supposed to replace the biological family. Although sometimes it will have to if a person is rejected by their biological family when they come to Christ. That does happen. But in most cases, the church should support the biological family in its responsibility to care for widows. So Paul says that children and grandchildren should care for the widows, the mothers and grandmothers in their own family, and the church should attend to those who are left all alone and who have set their hope on God. Thus the first part of this section actually has to do with who should not be on the widows' roll. Now in verse 9 he begins to tell us who should be on the roll. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Well, what does it mean for a widow to be enrolled? Obviously, we have to start there. Given the context and what Paul later says about a pledge, it seems that it was the practice of the early church to put at least some true widows on the payroll, as it were, and that these widows would pledge to live a life of purity, faithfulness, and service. George W. Knight III says, for example, here it is likely that the enrolled widow is to do some of the tasks. Named in verse 10, caring for children, showing hospitality, assisting those in distress, as well as the general, every good work mentioned there. Closed quote. So the church supported these women, but the relationship was reciprocal. These women became a very important part of the church's ongoing ministry. Now, as to the criteria for enrollment, Paul says that she must not be less than 60 years of age. John Kelly says that 60 was the recognized age in antiquity when one became an old man or woman, Close quote. She must also have been the wife of one husband. That could mean that she was only married once, but it is more likely that it has the sense captured by the NIV translation, which renders it has been faithful to her husband. I think that's what Paul is after here. She must also have a reputation for good works, and then several good works are listed. I love what Donald Guthrie says about the list. He says, the order in which the good deeds are mentioned is significant. Childcare ranks first. Hospitality next. Humble service towards believers third. And general sympathy and benevolence fourth. I imagine that you might find that very encouraging if you're a stay-at-home mom. Looking after your children is a good work. It's a good deed. I think sometimes moms feel like they're too busy looking after their kids to do many good deeds. But looking after your kids is a good deed. And it is exceedingly pleasing to the Lord. Thanks be to God. He goes on to say that she must have been active over the course of her life in hospitality, humble service, benevolent outreach, etc. Such a person is an excellent candidate for the widow's role. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows." So here Paul counsels against younger widows being enrolled for a couple of reasons. First of all, he thinks it likely that at some point, younger widows will want to remarry. And then, of course, to do so, they will have to break their faith, break their pledge to Christ. That's how we know, by the way, that there was a pledge to Christ. Apparently, that was part of what it meant to go on the roll. The widow made a a pledge to be married to the church, as it were, to then break that pledge. Pledge would bring her under judgment. Thus, Paul would have the younger widows remarry and bear children. There is also the danger that if a person spent too long in the program, they might become idle or learn to gossip and stir up trouble during their visitations. We remember that one of the problems in Ephesus appears to have been women who had too much money and too much time on their hands and who were giving encouragement to people they ought not to have. We don't want any more of that sort of thing, Paul says. The best way for us to avoid that is for all of us to get on with our various callings. Younger women should marry and raise children. And then finally, there is a very practical consideration. If the church is caring for people who don't really need it, then the church will run out of resources and find itself unable to care for people in a truly desperate situation. Of course, That is the sort of pragmatic resolve forced upon many organizations, Christians or otherwise, engaged in this sort of work. I was recently with an orphanage in Africa working in an area of the country devastated by the HIV-AIDS epidemic that required all of the children to present the death certificates of both of their parents before being enrolled in the program. Now, that seems callous to us at first. But there are simply so many orphans that they can only afford to help the most desperate. And if a child has even one parent, then he is in a comparatively better situation than the child that has no parent and no means of support at all. If the church is going to do the work she has been assigned in this broken and fallen world, then the leaders of the church will have to be able to make difficult decisions such as these. In verse 17, Paul begins to speak about those leaders. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Once again, we have to remember that the Greek word underneath our word honor means both to revere and respect, but also to support materially. And that is the obvious meaning again here. The early church had a paid ministry. It seems that most churches had a plurality of elders, some of which apparently did the lion's share of the preaching and teaching. These elders should be considered worthy of double honor because the Old Testament says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And because Jesus said, the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting Jesus as he is recorded in Luke 10, Verse 7, John Stott summarizes this section concisely when he says, "...conscientious elders should receive both respect and remuneration, both honor and an honorarium." In addition to respect and remuneration, the elders slash pastors must be protected from false accusations and slanders. He says that in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That is a very wise and balanced approach. On the one hand, pastors and elders should be protected from baseless accusations, which are likely to come fast and furious in the days ahead. But on the other hand, if there is a credible accusation and if there is not repentance and reform, then there ought to be public rebuke precisely because of the public nature of their ministry and influence. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Having given all of these instructions, Paul now seeks to press the urgency and importance of them into Timothy's soul. He puts him under a solemn obligation. He is to pursue this program without prejudice or partiality. He is not to appoint anyone to anything without due consideration, prayer, and process. Now, the second half of that verse is actually quite terrifying. It seems to indicate that leaders are in some way responsible for the sins committed by those hastily appointed to ministries and offices for which they were not qualified. The connection between verse 22 and 23 is not immediately apparent. Many commentators think it has to do with the word pure. Paul just told Timothy to keep himself pure, but immediately wants to clarify that, lest Timothy understand him to be commending ascetic practices. So Paul dispels that notion immediately in verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In verses 24 to 25, Paul returns to his previous theme. Though what he says is not unrelated to his suggestion that Timothy take a little wine for his stomach. He's saying that holiness and maturity is not merely a matter of external appearances. You can't just look at what a man eats or what a man drinks and discern the true nature of his heart and character. It's not as simple as that. And so Paul is saying that a little bit of discernment and a little bit of delay in laying on of hands will make it possible to discover leaders whose character and quality is not so readily apparent, but whose service will be a tremendous blessing and
0: benefit to the church. Thanks be to God.